0: I certainly never thought I was gonna be a researcher. Yeah. If you had asked me, you know, when I was an undergraduate, I would have said, oh no, oh no, I'm, I'm an artist, I'm a creative, I don't do research, you know, and, and yet I find research incredibly creative. Mm. And people say, do you miss design? And I dabble here and there, but no, I don't, because I feel like teaching and research are, are equally as creative, they're equally as fulfilling as doing architectural design work. Welcome to Health and Human Science Matters, a podcast by Colorado State University's College of Health and Human Sciences. I'm your co-host and digital media strategist, Avery Martin.
1: And I'm Matt Hickey, Associate Dean for Research and Graduate Studies. In our college, we make it our mission to optimize human health and well-being through discovery and innovation. Don't just take our word for it. Each episode, we sit down with people who fulfill that mission, our college faculty and staff. And today we're lucky enough to have Dr. Laura Mullinen with us, the director of the Richardson Design Center. Laura, welcome.
0: Thank you. Glad to be here.
1: So Laura, we, we want to start and we're going to bookend our conversation really with this this theme of sort of big problems, big questions that you pursue as a scholar and and the impact that you hope that that work has. So we'll start there. Tell us a little bit about big things, big problems, big questions or ideas that that you're interested in pursuing.
0: Sure. So I I guess I would say the core of my, my research really is around better understanding creativity. So in terms of big questions, creativity is a pretty big one. And big of course, mm-hmm. we know it's essential for solving, you know, the wicked societal problems of today. So if we can figure out how to be more creative, then maybe we can be more successful at solving some of these challenging problems.
1: Tell me a little bit more when you think about the word creativity, because I suspect some people will go to particular areas and and not Mm -hmm. consider the broader notion of what do we mean when we talk about creativity. So tell me a little bit more about your. Yeah,
0: that's a great question, because when you think about sort of the field of creativity research, a lot of it is focused on kind of, you know, the psychological processes of divergent thinking. So how many uses for a brick can you come up with, for example, right? Um, or, or psychological dimensions of personality of creativity. Um, so I study creativity in the wild. So I like to look at the natural dynamical process of creativity, all the way from kind of problem finding or discovering an issue or an area of concern all the way through to the implementation of a creative idea or problem. And and why I'm interested in this is because I'm interested in creativity from what's becoming to be known as the embodied cognition view of creativity. Mm -hmm. So how creativity is not all in our heads. Um, It's very much shaped by the tools that we use, the materials we interact with, the people that we collaborate with, and even the places and the settings that we inhabit while we're creative. So a really famous anecdote, one I like to share with my students who I teach you know interior design and design thinking. And so we talk about these things as Jonas Salk and um, his discovery of the, the polio vaccine. Mm-hmm. And so he, he really talks about how critical to that discovery was time away from his lab. So he was really frustrated, couldn't figure out, uh, you know how to, how to break through this problem. And so he went to Assisi, Italy. And, and spent some time in a monastery and was there when he had this great epiphany. Pretty and that cool. shaped um, yeah, yeah. that really shaped how he thought about later the design for the Salk Institute. And he uh, hired Louis Kahn to not make it look like a, a, a monastery, certainly it doesn't, but to inspire that kind of creativity for the people that work there.
1: That's a beautiful and, and timely, of course, because we're. You know, vaccines are on everybody's mind. Yes, everybody's. <laughs> indeed. But, but sometimes moving to a different track or path or, or setting that allows us to, you know, you can get that almost a laser-like focus on a problem and you can't see the forest for the trees, right?
0: Exactly. So there's something to be said for being, you know, what we call low-level distraction, right? So well, if you're said. in a pleasant setting and yeah. especially if you have a natural environment that's inspirational around you, it helps you not fixate maybe on a non productive line of thinking. So that's one way that the environment can play a role in creativity.
1: Now, I have to ask, after Salk, do you have a similar model? Do you find yourself where this is my place where I can go do something that will allow some of the cobwebs to to be cleared away and I can be more creative?
0: Uh, Yeah, I do. And and it's changing, too, right? So I find that I'll find a place that's working for me. And then when I feel that things are stalling, I'll either change up that environment in some way, Mm -hmm. you know could be as simple as playing different music, rearranging the furniture, cleaning my desk. <laughs> um, or I'll go to a new setting. And so uh, sometimes I find it really helpful, you know, if I've been working in my office and it's a nice enough day outside, I'll just sit outside for a little bit. And it just helps me think a little bit differently yeah. sometimes about the problem. And so moving around, you know, it's it's interesting. Uh, if you, I study the stories of eminently creative people too. And they often talk about, you know, sort of, voting with their feet when things are not happening. They go to a new setting or they walk around or they try a new environment. And uh, there's a famous saying that great breakthroughs happen in the bed on the bus and in the bath. <laughs> yes. okay. And so, you know, I don't think there's anything magical nice. about those places necessarily, but they're kind of interstitial spaces where we're not, you know, heads down focused. And sometimes that's that's really beneficial.
1: So I have to ask you the genesis of your interest in creativity. Where, where, how did Laura get to where she is today? Was this a lifelong passion? Did you have a, a mentor or a moment or... What yeah. what influenced you Who, who's we always talk about fingerprints in here right whose yeah. fingerprints do you continue to carry with you
0: yeah I think it's I think it was really an evolution uh-huh. um, so creativity was something that was really valued in my household growing up my mother was an artist my father a physicist oh and wow that's cool comment. so I I, that, so of course that. I studied architecture <laughs> 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 I to, the oldest child I had to appease them both somehow um, and so I think there was always that was always something that was valued. Um, but in terms of research, my journey was really a nonlinear one. So I, uh, I studied, uh, like I said, as an undergraduate student, I majored in architecture and, and art and art history. And I started practicing architecture. And I practiced commercial architecture as primarily a lead designer for a lot of commercial buildings, restaurants, Workplaces, schools, which I enjoy, churches, um, a lot of buildings, uh, wow. you know, not a few residences, but mostly in the larger commercial wow. sector. And then, um, you know, it's one of those things where you have this sort of life plan, career pathway that you've got planned out. And, you know, I was gonna become a licensed architect and I was gonna work my way up to partner in the firm. And at the point at which that happened, which was a lot faster actually than I anticipated it would, I was really right at that moment of everything that I thought I was working towards. And I realized I wasn't particularly satisfied with my job anymore, hmm. um, that there there was something missing. And so I decided to try teaching. And so um, I, I started- I to ask you, yeah. that's
1: not a small shift, right? No. So, no. <laughs> I mean. What what did you go through? You must there must have been some anxiety, some
0: Oh, absolutely. Rage. I mean, turning you know, having a great career and saying, Can you hold that thought for a minute? Let me go try something else yeah. for a while. Yeah. Um and, and you know, and not, not only that, but it was I couldn't find a full time teaching position immediately, so it was part time. So uh, you know, my husband kinda hung in there with me. <laughs> he was patient, gave it a go, uh, loved it. So I had started teaching uh at a at a college a design college, and uh, within six months, sort of out of the blue, I got a call from a high school principal, and he said, "So I heard you're an architect and you're teaching, and someone said you'd be perfect to create this new high school program for us." And I said, "Really? Because I have no teaching experience with high school students, but why not? It sounds interesting. Let me tell me more." And so that was really probably the most pivotal moment. So I was. Uh, teaching at what is, you know, traditionally considered a career in technology campus where students from the local high schools would come for half the day. And we created, I created an an architectural design program for them. And so it was for students that wanted to go kind of straight out from high school into a drafting job. Maybe they would wanna go to community college and get an associate's degree, or they wanted to build a portfolio for a four year university. So it really ranged. And uh, while I was there, I was only there for two years, but I created the program, so I learned how to design curriculum. I created a dual enrollment program so that students would get d- dual credit with the community college for the courses. And then the first day of class, you know, I was very excited about all these students who were there to learn to be architects, and I asked them why they were there. And half of them were like, I have no idea. <laughs> my, my advisor stuck me in this class. I don't even know what this class is. Yeah. And so I was like, Oh, well, this is going to be a little different experience than I thought it was. Um, but it was an amazing experience. So we actually all had a, a great time, I think because they didn't know why they were there. I was interested in finding out what would energize them and motivate them. And you know, we won our first student design competition that very first year. And I had students with a lot of different backgrounds and I saw some of these students that had really not done well in school suddenly flourish and that got me really curious as to why what is it about kind of a design class that was helping them learn and helping them learn in interesting ways so for example I had one student who um, had an individualized learning plan so I I had to meet with his parents and his counselor, and they were talking about his ability to be able to, to, to finish out high school and that that was gonna be a challenge for him, primarily because of math. And I said, wait a minute, did you say math? Because you know we teach CAD and he's doing geometry every day and he's one of my best students. And so there was something about being in a software program learning geometry mm. that made it very easy for him to learn where he was struggling. Mm. And so that got me really interested in sure. how people learn. Yeah. And that was kind of where I began then moving more into research. So I decided to get a master's degree in education and educational psychology. Um, and then sh- shortly after that, we moved to Colorado and I had an opportunity to go um, work at the university down the, down the street, so to speak. <laughs> and I was teaching instructional design and I was teaching in the uh, architecture program there. And uh, my colleagues there really were the ones that talked me into, into getting a PhD. So I got a joint PhD in cognitive science and design and planning, which is kind of like a double major again, um, because I was really interested at this point in kind of thinking about how to understand how people learn, the roles of, of tools and materials in their in their learning processes, and especially to better understand how to help people be more creative and, and learn about design. So that was really kind of where I started moving into creativity research.
1: That's fascinating, isn't it? Yes. I, I think there's, you know, there's millions of lessons here in some ways. We, you know, our audience. We hope, of course, are students that would be interested in coming to to learn design thinking or other things we offer in the college. But I think there's also some lessons here. So I don't know if anybody has called you brave or or bold, but that that move to flourish in a particular area that that had been kind of in your wheelhouse, in your pipeline for some time and and to make it and then say, I'm going to go try something else. Can you now reflect on that for us years later and and say, you know, was it a function of uh, I had permission or I had the support network or just lessons we might be able to share with, with listeners who
0: yeah, might find I,
1: themselves in similar position of this is not exactly what I anticipated and I want to try something else, but I don't dare.
0: Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, it's something that I've been talking with. And, I, you know, I don't know if I can tell you what the exact recipe was. Sure. You know, so I'm teaching this semester developing a new class for the Design Center called Designing Your Life. And so we talk about this. Wow, and I think yeah. in... The way that I saw it at that time was, I had, I, I suppose we talk about this idea of creative confidence, that somehow you feel like it's okay to take a risk because you have enough confidence that you can take what you've learned and and move on if you fail at this, right? If it's not the right move, it's not the end of the world, you can, you can pivot, so to speak. Sure. And so I think, yeah, going into teaching was a big pivot for me, and I not sure why then except it felt like if i was going to become a partner in a firm that was that was a big commitment and i felt a big sense of responsibility that if i accepted that it was, i was going to be all in but i didn't feel all in at that mm-hmm. moment mm-hmm. i was really questioning whether i wanted to So there's to be an element
1: of integrity in. here as much as anything else yeah, yeah i think
0: i think so i think it was being you know kind of being very self-reflective true to myself not being too risk averse which is sometimes hard you mm-hmm. know when sure. you're paying a mortgage and raising children and all of that but realizing that I felt that I had acquired enough experience in enough different areas and I and I had a nice network, too. So I also talked to students about, you know, like I said, I got called out of the blue to go teach high school just because of the people that I kind of knew and that I worked with. And so I felt reasonably confident that I could go back into the world of architecture. But I I just wanted to give this like a a, a shot, you know, so to speak. And so, you know, I kind of thought, well, a year I'll see, you know, you know, I'll see how it is in a year. And then, you know, once I started teaching, oh, and I just I was like, yeah, I'm not going back. I just love this. This is this is really where I want to be, oh, um, which is funny. Coming from a family of teachers, I originally thought I had no interest in being a teacher. But <laughs> it's in your DNA. <laughs> it, it must be in my DNA. Yeah.
1: So, you know, I'm struck by how often we have conversations and even reflecting on my own pathway of, you know, when I was an undergraduate, could I in my wildest dreams picture myself sitting here doing what I do now? And I think for you, again, the picture was different
0: very different. And I certainly never thought I was going to be a researcher. Yeah. If you had asked me, you know, when I was an undergraduate, I would have said, oh, no, oh, no, I'm, I'm an artist. I'm a creative. I don't do research, you know. And, and yet I find research incredibly creative. Mm. And people say, do you miss design? And I dabble here and there. But no, I don't, because I feel like teaching and research are, are equally as creative. They're equally as fulfilling as doing architectural design work.
1: You know, and sometimes I think we, we make the mistake of imagining our future as a still photo instead of this unfolding, you know, 16 millimeter film. Oh, right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a dynamic thing. Yeah. Goals can be good, of course, and still photos, you know, run together, become the film in some ways. But it's mm-hmm. interesting that um, some flexibility, which maybe is, is a synonym for creativity in yeah. some ways. Can Certain,
0: be, certainly necessary yeah. for it anyway. Yeah. 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 yeah
1: so how how did csu get on this unfolding horizon of flora's creative journey
0: yeah so i was uh so i was teaching at as we said the university down the street um <laughs> and uh, i had not yet finished i was uh, in the process of finishing my phd and i was at a creativity conference it was actually a very small kind of invitation only conference which was really interesting so um There, I I met a bunch of interesting people, but one person that I met was Catherine Lee, who was teaching in uh, the interior design program there. And so Catherine ensured that I applied for the position. (laughs) She could be very (laughs) persuasive. I think she called me up every week and said, I don't see your application yet. You should apply for this. Um, And I wasn't on the tenure track. I was in a senior instructor position. and so, uh, you know, it was, it was, I was not necessarily looking to make a change, I was pretty happy where I was, but it was an interesting opportunity. And, and once I got here and learned more about the university and learned that the interior architecture program was in the uh, College of Health and Human Sciences, that intrigued me a lot mm-hmm. um, because I really thought that that was a very unique place for a design program to be sitting
1: yeah.
0: and in a really positive way.
1: And so we managed to bait the hook and get you to not only apply, but actually come join us, right? Yeah. And you've got this really cool position in a really cool place, an absolute pearl, as far as I'm concerned, all, all over campus is the Richardson Design Center. So talk, talk to our listeners a little bit about uh, what, what is a day in the life of Laura and And as we've said so many times, there is no typical day in many ways. But talk us through a little bit about what, what academic life looks like for you and cool activities at the RDC.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. So I wear two hats. I'm still, at least uh, more than than most (laughs) days. I'm still, uh, half-time associate professor in the interior architecture and design program. So I still teach in that program and have service responsibilities. Um, So I I generally teach um, the first part of the capstone course for our interior design. Well, they take it the second semester of the junior year. It's their big capstone project. And there's a lot of um, environmental psychology in that class. So I really enjoy that. And I usually teach a graduate class as well. And then I have my research you know, sits in, in the department, my research percentage, and then I'm also half time the director of the Nancy Richardson Design Center which was just been an amazing experience so the Design Center the very very early planning for that started right when I came to CSU so I was in the very first visioning meeting I was invited to that which was oh, fun, exciting yeah. um, and so that's really been you know a process that I've enjoyed being part of and you know I like to tell people if you've toured the building you've heard this but uh I like to tell people that we had 64 visioning meetings before we even started working on the architectural design for the building. And that involved, you know, what what is, what is this going to be? Is it going to be a building? Is it a curriculum? What kind of experiences do we want students to have here? And that was a very collaborative, I mean, that was a design thinking creative process in and of itself. Mats, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so we had, uh, I think, so the main group was about 94 different people from all different fields, industry, alum, faculty, staff, students, really helping to shape that vision. Uh, so that's been really exciting. And then the the center opened in January of 2019. So yeah, not long before the pandemic. And it's just been explosive growth ever since. Even all through the pandemic, we've, we've continued to have uh, face-to-face classes. So the classes, um, we have an AUCC class, uh, Foundations of Design Thinking, that continues to be incredibly popular. So if any students are listening to this, if you wanna be in that class, you need to stay on the wait list. We keep trying to tell students that we try to open up wait lists, mm-hmm. but uh, we hear oftentimes that students are like, oh, I've tried for three semesters to get into that class. We offer it all year round, every fall, spring, summer. Wow. And then we have toolbox courses and those came out of students' uh, student input. So students said, you know, we really want this sort of just-in-time approach to learning that we can't typically get yeah. uh, in our in our typical college curriculum. And mm-hmm. so those are one to three credits. Most of them are one to two credits. Um, and they're focused on particular skills and technologies that we, you know, we like to think of design thinking as being a not interdisciplinary, but transdisciplinary kind mm-hmm. of curriculum, and mm-hmm. that it, it really applies to all different fields and disciplines.
1: And, and the RDC, embodies that transdisciplinary approach right because it's not just students from CHHS or DM that are in and out of that building or faculty for that matter right so talk us a little bit more about the the yeah. kinds of things that go on under the roof.
0: Well, let's see. Within our first year, we had students from 64 different majors and concentrations taking our classes, all at colleges. That's, so we were super yeah. excited when we got that first vet med student, and we could say every call <laughs> <out>. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, And some of our earliest champions were actually a group of chemistry students that were super excited about having the design center. They wanted to create a design club, and so... We foster, so we have an undergraduate certificate and undergraduate minor that students can earn. We have a graduate certificate, which is offered online, that professionals can learn. Uh, But we have a lot of other activities as well. So we have our fabrication labs that are open to everyone. And so if you're not in a course that, that uses the labs as part of the curriculum, you can come in and buy an access pass for $130 for the semester. And that's for students, faculty, or staff. And that gives you access to all kinds of trainings, all of the tools, the equipment. So we have a woods lab, a metals lab, a prototyping lab. We have virtual reality screen printing. Um, and you can use any of that equipment. And then we have a little bit of materials also that's included in that so that you can try out different things if you're not sure. So it really is about uh, fostering exploration, you know, and, and letting people test out different things, try different things. and. And see what, what resonates with them, what they like. And then we also do different kinds of outreach activities as well. And we do workshops with high school. We have a new dual enrollment program with high school students for two of our courses. And we do community workshops and a lot of different kinds of events. So when we first opened up, we had so many events the first year 54. I like to keep track of numbers in case you have
1: yes.
0: okay. 54 events the first year. And uh, I was in a meeting one day. We were introducing each other around the table. None of us had known each other. And, and somebody, when I said I was with the Nancy Richardson Design Center, they said, oh, you're with the party school. I said, the, the party school? And she said, well, you're always having events over there. Oh, <laughs> that's not, that's <laughs> I said, well, interesting. I don't know if I like to be known as the party school, yeah, but different yes, connotation, we are always <laughs> having events. <laughs> we are very busy over there that's with a lot of events. And yeah. uh, so, you know, that slowed down, obviously, during during the, the midst of the pandemic. But we are, we are very quickly um, getting very busy again with a lot of tours and events and workshops and things like that.
1: So for our listeners, again, you know, I might be an art major. I might be a chemist, as you talked about, or a biochemist. I might be a health and exercise science major. What does what design thinking got to do with me? Why well, think about design thinking? yeah or should we all think about design thinking? so design
0: thinking um ties very nicely with my creativity research it it really comes out of um well back back in the 1950s <laughs> there was um a real interest suddenly in in the field of psychology and studying creativity so creativity was something that hadn't gotten a lot of attention it's really hard to study So along with that, maybe just a few years later, there also became a big interest in understanding how designers think. So design cognition is that field of research. And so those two bodies of research have been around for quite a long time, really are the underpinnings of what we we call today design thinking. So design thinking became popularized in the late 90s, early 2000s, primarily uh, by the Stanford D School that started a design thinking program and by IDEO, which is like a product design company. And and one of the leaders of IDEO helped design the D School curriculum. And so it became very, very popular. Um, And really what it is is it's drawing on research from design cognition and creativity to develop particular processes, tools, and methods that people can easily learn to help them basically drive creativity, to help them be more creative. So the whole thinking behind design thinking is that anybody can be creative, anybody can learn to be, creativity is more like an exercise to be, or or a muscle to be exercised, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's not, you know, yes, some people seem to be a little more inherently creative than others, but it's something that anybody can learn, anybody can get better at. Mm -hmm. And so design thinking really just provides kind of an understandable structure and process to help people become more creative, to help them give them tools, to help them think more flexibly about an idea, to help them understand an idea better. So for example, we say it's human-centered, which means that it's Mm empathy-driven. And so um, some of the core principles of design thinking really involve um, learning how to listen deeply and empathetically to others, being really good observers of a situation. Uh, Being able to be kind of a novice in a situation, so not coming at a problem with our own personal experience lens, but being able to be a little more open to really seeing a problem from multiple dimensions or multiple perspectives. And if you can define a problem really well, that's really one of the biggest pieces of having a creative solution. So a well-defined problem is going to yield a more creative solution than a less well-defined problem. And so problem finding, we talked about problem finding a lot, is really, really important. And so we focus a lot on that, but then also on giving people tools to work with users and stakeholders and other people that might be involved in a problem to help them come up with creative
1: solutions. And this creativity, again, I'm circling back to some of our earlier conversations, can often be manifested as things, deliverables, products that, that are in three dimensions, tiny houses, right interior architecture but it, it seems to me it also can can be in the, the traditional two dimensions of words on a page right poetry or prose mm-hmm. notes shades that are applied to a canvas these so again i, I just love this more expansive because I, i'm one of those guys that would say i don't have a creative bone in my body, right mm-hmm. you know that kind of thing and i think helping take the blinders off that creativity can be manifested in a variety of different ways is. At least for me, it's encouraging.
0: Absolutely. Um, It's it's not just about artistic creativity. So a a system, a method, a process, all of those can be creative outputs. An experience, right? So you could design an experience for somebody. It does not need to be a product. When we teach the introduction class, We usually focus on a product because it's a little more tangible and you can get user feedback more easily on a product. But as we move up through the curriculum, we definitely expand that Mm -hmm. much beyond process. In fact, one of our capstone courses is designing for defense. And working with the U.S. Department of, De- working on declassified problems from the U.S. Department of Defense, and those are not usually products. Occasionally, the solution is a product, but oftentimes it's not a product. It might be a system, and so you know, and and you know, we're looking at expanding other kinds of of problem spaces. So yes, right now we have two capstone courses. We have the, what's become known as the Tiny House Course, which is a design and build. Um, so we built the first tiny house. Um, finished it in the spring, sold it this fall, and and we're now in the process of of designing the the next one and then designing for (laughs) defense. And then, you know, eventually we're actually talking about possibly as early as this fall, rolling out another capstone that would have a different kind of a focus uh, again, the key to all of these is, is students are working with industry, so I probably didn't talk about that too much, but they're working specifically with people in the industry, with mentors in the industry, or people that are involved, stakeholders in these different problems, whether it's housing and homelessness with a tiny house or defense problems with designing for defense or other kinds of problems. So we've worked with a lot of nonprofit organizations, um, Food Bank of Colorado, uh, Defy Colorado, which is, interested in kind of prison system reform and how people so that would definitely be an example of more of an experience sure, or a system sure. mm-hmm. kind of solution how you help people um, once they're out of the out of the prison system become able to transition better into life and new experiences for them and what the what the future holds for them and so those are some other kinds of things that we've tackled in those courses
1: wow that's incredible yeah yeah so in the spirit of what the future holds it, Imagine yourself five years down the road. What are you doing? What's the RDC doing? How has design thinking penetrated, not just the campus, I hope, but far beyond? Yeah. Cast us a vision.
0: <laughs> oh gosh, you know, I it, it's funny when we opened in twenty nineteen, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have predicted the vision that we have today, which is just how many students we've touched, how how robust the growth has been in the RDC. It's been much like a fire hose. <laughs> um, you know, I feel like we're sometimes just trying to stay ahead of what the, the demand. So it, in terms of the future, I mean, some of the things that we're trying to do in the RDC is develop our own sort of materials and methods based on our own research that we can then teach people. So sure. I think that's, that's an area that ties maybe a little more into um, into research. We're also using the building as a, as a third teacher, so to speak, so understanding. So that's another part of my research, which is sort of understanding how places can help spur creativity, especially interdisciplinary creativity. And so we're actually using augmented reality to understand people's experience in that place. Wow. Um, so I think, you know, my ultimate goal, right, is to 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 help develop, you know, more effective strategies to help people you know, unlock their creativity and be more innovative, as well as to design places that, that are better at fostering interdisciplinarity and, and creative collaboration.
1: Kind of makes you want to hang out over there, doesn't it? Yes. Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty cool. So, Laura, you uh, have an opportunity to, to be part of the faculty in this College of Health and Human Sciences, and I wonder if you can share some reflections about what you like best about working in the College of Health and Human Sciences.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, what attracted me to the college, and I alluded to this earlier, was the fact that it is a college of health and human sciences. And, you know, they're the human part of that, right? That we're always focused on how we can improve people's lives mm-hmm. through all these different perspectives. I think the health piece also appealed to me. So many people may not think of creativity in this sense, but creativity is part of what, what's called positive psychology. And we understand that creativity is important for well-being. And it's important, you know, across the lifespan. So I also do research with aging and looking at how being engaged in creative activities give us better outcomes as we age. And so I think that was another piece that was really intriguing. And then, you know, the third piece is is just all the collaborations. I think I have collaborated with someone from every, I mean, multiple people in, in many cases from, every single unit in this college. And I've just found that so wonderful. And that that's true at CSU in general, just how how enthusiastic people are about interdisciplinary collaboration, which is not true everywhere. Um, and I found that yeah. very, very personally satisfying and energizing.
1: That's cool. So you've you've hinted at the next step up, right? So institutionally, we're, we're at a land grant. You know, one of the things I've really enjoyed about CSU in the 25 years I've been here is that they, they don't just say that right? They, that's really put, written into our ethos. So talk about the land-grant mission and how your work dovetails so nicely with that. And you've hinted at that by you know, the parties. <laughs> party, parties. <laughs> <school. Yeah. laughs> I probably should have said that now
0: we're going to get, that's going to make that worse. I'm going to hear that again. <laughs> the event school or guess. something. The, well, really the community outreach school exactly. is really exactly. what it is because that's really what all those events were about is yeah. about outreach. And yeah, so CSU, I wasn't, I, to be honest, I wasn't super familiar with what a land grant university was until I started exploring CSU and thinking of it as a place where I might want to work. And I realized what a fabulous fit for me personally, because the kind of work that I do is very engaged. Um, it's, you know, it's working with the local community to solve important wicked societal problems. And of course, you know the impact of that can go beyond the local community, but starting local. And starting with the people that are here in northern Colorado or in Colorado more generally um, and working with them, I think, is something that's been really exciting. Like I said, I like to study creativity in the wild, and that's that's how I do it is working on real projects with real people and exploring how those creative processes evolve and how we can make them more effective effective and make sure we have the right people at the table, you know, that are engaged. And so co-design and, and participatory action research are components of the work that I do. And I think that just fits really nicely at a land grant university.
1: It's so well said. And, and I'm struck again by your your phrase of studying creativity in the wild, right? Because mm-hmm. life can be wild. We, you know, we were talking about that as we started today, right? That even our little microscopic journey this semester has been... A bit wild in the last two years have been wild for all of us, right? So, you know, the the healthy people, healthy places mantra, we get healthy communities from, from our college mission really is in the wild in the sense of we're looking at people and families and where they're at, right? In, in their, their native environment. You know, yeah. we're, we're not ecologists in, in the strict sense of the word, but I, I think moving out of the lab-based setting and into, you know, where are people interacting and where can creativity be manifested is, is a really cool way to think about approaching how we do what we do. So thank you.
0: Thank you. It's yes. been a pleasure chatting with you today. And that's the show. Thank you for listening to another episode of Health and Human Science Matters.
1: Be sure to listen to the rest of season two, as well as our episodes from season one. And if you want to learn more about our College of Health and Human Sciences, go to www.chhs.colostate.edu.